Well, we have been going through Timothy, as you know. Um, last night I just sat down and uh, I'd done all the preparation and planning and I just felt one of those urges of the Holy Spirit. And so I thought, you know, we're not going to do Timothy this morning. We're going to do a study of Psalm 23. As mentioned earlier, this was one of Linda's favorite psalms. And it's so applicable um, at all times to all of us. And I think it's just a great place just to come and reflect this morning. And just let the Lord minister to us through this incredible psalm. So let's read the psalm to start with and then we'll uh, we'll go into uh, the study of it. Uh, psalm 23, just a short six-verse psalm. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in in the house of the Lord forever. What a great psalm. I mean, it's one that's so well known. It's uh, familiar to us all, I'm sure. It's simply entitled, A Psalm of David. One uh, commentary, in fact, it was Spurgeon's uh, commentary, said this, It is but a moment's opening of his soul. But as when one walking through the winter streets sees the door opened for someone to enter, And the red light streams a moment forth, and the forms of children laughing and running to greet the comer. And genuine music sounds. Although the door shuts and leaves the night black, yet it cannot shut back again all that the eyes, the ear, and the heart, and the imagination have seen. He's just creating that picture. You imagine walking along a, a street at night, you know, it's dark, and suddenly a door opens, and you see life and laughter and fun and everything else and the door shuts but that moment was enough just to, to tell you if everything was going on there it was just a wonderful occasion and he says so in this psalm though it is but a moment's opening of the soul are emitted truths of peace and consolation that will never be absent from the world so this psalm of david as i said it, it doesn't need any other introduction that that's really all sufficient we need to know we know a lot about david there's so much print given to this character in scripture uh, and none is needed because we know what he was like we know the ups the downs of david's life and it doesn't record any specific events we, we don't know whether this came at the beginning of david's life or it came at the end of david's life uh, and the scholars will argue either side, and really it doesn't matter, uh, because either way, it's still a great testimony of the God that he, come, he came to know and love. And Spurgeon again said this, it needs no other key, in other words, kind of introduction or way of unlocking it, or even from a musical perspective, no other key that every Christian may find in his own bosom. In other words, this is something that we can all relate to. We've all been here in this kind of situation, and that the truths that come through this psalm are so profound. When was it written? Well, as I said, we don't know, and really it doesn't matter. But the position of it is interesting not being flippant but obviously psalm 23 comes after psalm 22 and if you know anything about psalm 22 
You know that Psalm 22 is, if you like, the psalm of the cross. This is the psalm that Jesus quotes from while he's on the cross. And it speaks so much of the agony that Jesus endured for us as he was purchasing our salvation. And Spurgeon made the comment that there are no green pastures or still waters on the other side of Psalm 22. And he went on to say that it was only after those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only after those words have been uttered that we come to, the Lord is my shepherd. You see, the only way we can come to this psalm and to all the promises that we have here is because of Calvary, is because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And so it begins, the very first verse, the opening word of the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. And we need to just pause here and just consider who it is that we are saying is our shepherd. This isn't some remote God that's distant from us. It's not some God that we can't know or can't understand. It's not some God that we're fearful. If you remember, Tony the other week was talking and he was talking about other religions and you know they have their millions of gods in, in uh, various uh, cultures and so on. And, and they all seem to be fearful of those gods and doing whatever they can to keep the gods away from them. Well, not so with our God. Our God is Jehovah, the self-existent one. The I am that I am is the eternal one, the one that has always been there, the one that always will be there, the one that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, you may remember on uh, our website, Linda uh, did a study. In fact, she taught a whole conference going through looking at the names of God, and then she broke that down for us, and those notes are still on our website. I encourage you to go back and look at them, looking at the names of God. And I'll just go through some of these names that we have in Scripture. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is our provider. This is the God, when we're saying the Lord is our shepherd, this is the God that we're speaking of. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Genesis 22 verse 14, of course, comes from that situation with Abraham on Mount Moriah. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord, our banner. From Exodus 17, 15. You see people lifting up a banner that they're proud to march under a particular banner or ensign or whatever. Well, the Lord is our banner. It's the Lord who we are under. Jehovah Rapha. From Exodus 15, 26, the Lord, our healer. And we don't always see that this side of heaven, but what healing there is eternally. And again, you know, we tend to think of everything in our minds in terms of this earth and here and now, but what a great healing the Lord has already done of our hearts. What a great work the Lord is already doing in our minds as we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. What a great work the Lord has done dealing with bitterness and resentment and sometimes anger and things that have come from the past. And the Lord has done all those things in us as he makes us more and more like Jesus. And sometimes the Lord will choose to heal physically, but ultimately the greatest healing of all is when we put off these mortal bodies because however long we endure, these bodies are mortal. The greatest healing is when we are taken from this life and when this earthly tabernacle gives way and then we are immediately with the Lord, which Paul says is far better. 
Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. It's from Judges 6, 24. Uh, and you know, scripture speaks about a peace that passes understanding. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that is our shepherd. He's chosen to be. He's willingly offered himself as our shepherd. Jehovah Ra, which is from this psalm, the Lord our shepherd, literally. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord is our righteousness, which comes from Jeremiah thirty-three sixteen, And then Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is ever present, Isaiah 16, verse 19. And then one that's at the end of this list, Jehovah Shua, or Yehoshua, Joshua, Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord is our salvation. This is the Lord who is our shepherd. And again, that's the God who has willingly given himself to be our shepherd. But notice what David says. It doesn't say the Lord is a shepherd. The Lord is the shepherd. No, he says the Lord is my shepherd. Isn't it incredible? And it's so hard to even get our heads around that that God that we've just briefly tried to to describe in those titles we've given in Scripture, that that God would choose to be our shepherd individually, each one of us this morning, that he would take us, he would lead us, he would care for us, he would watch over us, he'd provide for us. And this is all that he's undertaken for us. This God has a great personal interest in me and in you. It's, it's really hard for us to try and get our heads around because so often we go through those things where people don't understand us. I mean, maybe that's just me. I don't know. I think we've all been there, haven't we? You've been in situations where people just don't understand. But God does. The Lord is your shepherd. He understands you. He understands exactly what you're feeling at any time, right now or at any time during the week or any time in life. He knows. And he's not a God who can't sympathize because he understands our weakness because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, we're told. I mean, you don't get a better friend than that. Someone that knows us so well. Someone who's not going to turn away when they find out those deep and dark truths about us that we try and hide from everybody else. We all say, don't we? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. And that's just a code, which really says, no, I'm crying out inside, but I don't know how to share it. But he knows. He's our shepherd. Psalm 48, 14 says, for this God is our God. And there's something wonderful about that. You know, all the religions in the world can do whatever they want, but this God is our God. It's it's something so special, something, a treasured possession that we each have. And of course, it's not something we want to keep secret, but there's something lovely about knowing that God is our God, our Father. This amazing condescension that the infinite God would stoop down as we said already, to be our shepherd. He's the great shepherd who cares and equips us. The great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. He died for the sheep. The Father gave them to Jesus. And we're told in John 18, 9, that he's not lost one. Of all that were given to him, he's not lost one. 
Matthew 18, verse 11 to 13, we read this. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go into the mountains and seek that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices, rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety-nine which went not astray. We're singing that song. I love those words. The overwhelming love of God. They would leave the 99 to come and save us. And you know, each one of us is that one. We are the one that went astray. At some point in our lives, there's been a moment where God has had to come in and rescue us and reach us and bring us to him and bring us to that place where we fall on our knees, either physically or just metaphorically before him, but we fall on our knees and acknowledge that he is Lord. He rescues us. You know, and sheep, that's us. You know, and this ties in very nicely in a sense with the things we've been looking at in Timothy recently. We've been talking about shepherds, the under-shepherds and the sheep and so on. Well, sheep really are foolish. Of all the creatures that God could liken us to and him being a shepherd, sheep is a great example because they are foolish. They need help. They're not wild animals in that sense. They're always the property of an owner. Somebody looks after sheep. You don't have that with raccoons or with tigers or with other creatures, but sheep need someone to look after them. They're also prone to getting lost. They require protection. They require care. They require leading. You know, you can't drive sheep in the same way that you can with cattle and so on. Sheep need to be led. And that's why he is our shepherd. Isaiah 53, we know it well. Verse 6 and 7 says this, We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. You see, he was in our place as a lamb, because he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep in our place, before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. So again, the Lord is my shepherd. Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 1 to 16, is the great portion that speaks of this. I, I like this comment from um, J.L. Porter, who wrote a, a great book about the giant cities of Bashan back in 1867, um, speaking about the habitations of the giants that they'd uncovered. Uh, people that say that there were no giants have not done their homework in history uh, because there's plenty of evidence of their dwellings and so on. That book is one that's in the British Library um, even now. But he made this comment. He said, the shepherds themselves had none of that peaceful and placid aspect which is generally associated with pastoral life and habits. They look more like warriors marching to the battlefield, a long gun slung from the shoulder and a dagger and heavy pistols in the belt a light battle axe or iron-headed club in the hand. Such were the equipments and their fierce flashing eyes and scowling countenances showed but too plainly that they were prepared to use their weapons at any moment. I, I like that because often we have this very pretty picture of a shepherd. And, and actually, the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is a warrior. 
You know, Joshua, that night before the assault on Jericho goes out and he meets the commander of the host of the Lord. He is the one that is our shepherd. That doesn't give you confidence, whatever circumstance or whatever situation we'll face. And so David goes on and says, the Lord is my shepherd. Just having thought about those things, he says, so I, I shall not want. Really, it's, I, I will lack no good thing. With a shepherd like that who's undertaken to care for me, to provide for me, all these things, I'm not going to lack anything that I need. And David, we know, as well as anybody else we could think of in history or in Scripture, knew God's provision. As a shepherd himself, he knew how a shepherd cares for his sheep. So he could confidently say, I shall not want. Philippians 4.19 says this, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God is not on a budget. God is not in a position where he has to think hard about what he does and doesn't do with his resources. No, God has this abundance. The cattle on a thousand hills, are told, belong to him. There's no problem on God's economy. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Matthew 6, 26 to 33, we read this. Behold the fowls of the air, look at the birds, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? And which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? You know, you, you can't make yourself taller, you can't, you know, do anything of, the, of that nature. He says, well, why then take your thought off for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast in the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And therefore, Take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal we shall be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. He's a good shepherd, remember. He knows we need all these things. So we're told, rather than worrying about those things, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You see, it's because the Lord is our shepherd that he will provide all his sheep need. You know, you can ask the question, have you ever seen a, a stressed sheep? You don't often see a sheep that looks particularly stressed, do you? Now, I have to say, I did have one experience. I used to work um, on top of a hill outside Folkestone, Kent, at a uh, radio uh, mast with um, microwave radio dishes on it. Um, years ago, when I was working for BT in the maintenance role there. And it was a really kind of big compound, and all the fields around the compound had sheep. Well, one day, one of the sheep got into our compound. And so there was about six of us trying to get this sheep out. And have you ever seen how high a sheep can jump? Uh, well, we were quite amazed. We kind of backed it into a corner at one point, and it jumped over us. And we still don't know how he did it. And we were chasing this sheep around the field. Eventually, we managed to get it, and we managed to get it back into the right field. Uh, that's the closest I've ever seen to a stressed sheep. But even then, I think he was just playing with us. <coughs> you see, it's not within the sheep's power to provide for itself. So it must rely on the shepherd. 
and in the same way for us. You know, we can't provide for ourselves. We have to rely on the shepherd. And it's a relationship of complete abandon that brings real peace. And for us, not so much for the sheep, but for us with our Lord, with our God, with our shepherd. When we come to that place of realizing that he loves us more than he loves the grass of the field and the flowers and the birds, he's promised to provide for us. And he does, and he will. James 4, 1 to 3 says this, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your own lust that war in your members? You lust and you have not, you kill and you desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. See, that's, that's the contrast to what we just read in Matthew. In Matthew, the Lord is saying he'll provide everything we need. Here's when we're in a situation where we're trying to solve the problems ourselves, it becomes problematic. Is it ask you and receive? Sorry, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. Because once again we should be seeking first the kingdom of God. Verse two says, "He makes me to lie down in green pastures." You know, when we learn to abandon to Him, we find that He will supply all that we need, and we'll be amazed at the abundance of His provision. You know, for a sheep to be led into green pastures. I mean, that, that would be like, well, when we go to Gunwolf and Joy goes into the cabaret shop. You know, it, it, it's all that, the abundance, everything you could think of, everything you could want. But the Lord takes us to those places and he provides everything that we need. All the nourishment that we need from his word, all the things that we need from fellowship from each other. The Lord leads us into these places. Not places where we're going to be abandoned or destitute. Or where we're going to struggle. And sometimes those places, we, we, we arrive at places in our life where it feels almost that way. But we're given a promise here. This isn't just a, a, a hopeful plea on David's part. David is making a statement, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And sometimes the Lord has to engineer circumstances so that we stop and we rest for a moment. So we stop and we actually look around at all that God has given us. Sometimes we're so busy doing things that we miss what God is actually leading us to and providing. I love a quote from Oswald Chambers where he said, you know, what we call the journey, God calls the end. We have this idea that we're on a journey somewhere in our spiritual life. And actually it's right now, it's this the moment that God is wanting us just to say, Lord, I love you. Lord, you're all I want. You know, sometimes we get, like Martha, cumbered by such a load of care. And so he has to make us to lie down in green pastures. So sometimes the circumstances are there to bring us to a point where we stop. I've been there. I know Pete's been there. Pete was there a year or so ago with his health issues. And look at what the Lord has done in his life since that point. You know, in my own life, I've seen many a time the Lord has kind of stopped me in, in a ways that I wouldn't have chosen. But you stop and you look and you realize that God has placed an abundance around you. And the most important thing is that we learn to go to him. Ephesians 3.20 says this, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. 
See, not only has he green pastures, it speaks of his ability, but he leads me into them, which speaks of his goodness. One commentary put it this way, he causes me to rest in pastures of new growth. Again, sheep would eat to destruction if left in one place. They need to be moved on. They need to be moved to fresh ground. And a good shepherd will move them on in the same way as our shepherd will keep us moving on, keep us growing. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not fail, one commentary said, because he sets me down with tender shoots of new grass. I love that. It's saying the same thing. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I can't fail because he is the one that is leading me and he's going to direct my paths. Again, notice this. He leads me beside the still waters. Again, Spurgeon in his commentary on Psalms makes this very clear. Not next to a a running stream or next to some rapids that are fast-moving. But he leaves me next to the still waters, waters such that I could drink from them if I wanted to, but not such that I'm going to get sucked in and dragged away and led down the stream. You know, God doesn't lead us into danger. Again, he knows our weaknesses. He knows not to tempt us beyond a certain point, and we're told that he won't ever do that. And then we're told in verse 3 that he restores my soul. I, I love this idea you know because sometimes as a believer you get to stages where you feel dry you feel kind of as if everything is um you're almost in a desert place and and you're thirsty you want more of the lord and sometimes you don't know how to 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 get more of the lord and you, you, you circumstances or whatever um just seem to just come crashing around you but david says he restores my soul the wonderful work that he does you know that wanting has almost destroyed us in times past and those three enemies that the bible speaks of the world the flesh the devil sought to put our light out psalm 51 12 david prayed there restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit it's kind of that spiritual refreshing almost like a imagine a journey through a very dry barren place and then being able to to bathe to wash to be immersed in water and that's the idea here the restoring our soul bringing us again bringing this life out of us of all that he puts in romans six sixteen says know you not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey his servants you are to whom you obey whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Sometimes we find ourselves, inadvertently sometimes, serving things that would lead us to death. You know, Paul said not all things are sinful, but some, but some things are not necessarily helpful. And we need to be careful that we don't allow certain things into our life because they can pull us away from God and we can end up serving things that suddenly we realize are leading us in the wrong direction. But no, we need to serve Christ. We need to serve him. We need to do the things that we read in his word. We need to fellowship. It's so important that we spend time together, that we encourage each other mutually. 
Iron sharpening iron. You know, you get an occasion, even like yesterday, when you get a lot of believers together, fellowship, and it's a lovely experience. And you'll get charged up and fired up by each other. And we need more of that, particularly as we see the day approaching. Again, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The expression here really in the Hebrew is the worn paths of righteousness. I love that. There's others that have gone before us. This is the route that others have trod before us. And it leads to this destination that we want to go to. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he, is the, he that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. How could Paul have that confidence? He knew that others were already on this path. He knew that God was going to ensure that we get to the end of this. The verse I alluded to a moment ago from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation you know look at what they're going to get at the end of their lives the reward the blessing and so on remember them that have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of god whose faith follow proverbs 17 verse 3 says the refining or refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold but the lord tries the hearts and the lord will indeed at times try our hearts test us we talked about that just last week we were talking about the deception the apostasy that comes into the church that the lord sometimes allows even from within the church and why because as we saw in deuteronomy god allows that to test us to try us to see whether our heart really is for him or not psalm 37 is one of my favorite psalms um, I remember teaching through this some time ago, and it gives us a very clear and distinct path to righteousness there. It says, Trust in the Lord and do good, so thou shalt dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. You see, what you've got there is a very simple little plan that God gives you. Number one, trust in the Lord. That's, that's where it begins. That's where it begins for any one of us, trusting in him, trusting for our salvation, trusting that he will lead us in our walk. But then it's more than just trusting. It's believing that we should delight ourselves in the Lord. And then actually choosing to put the things of God first. And coming to that place where we actually really, truly enjoy the things of God. You know, for an unbeliever to come to a, a church service and to get involved in a worship time, it's a very kind of strange and awkward experience for them. But for someone that loves the Lord, when we come and we worship, isn't it wonderful? You know, I'm sure often, you know, like me, you just wish those worship times could go on and on. Just being able to praise Him. So we trust in the Lord, we delight ourselves in the Lord, then we commit our way to the Lord. Whatever, is it, whatever we do, we commit our way to him. So trust, delight, and commit our way to him. And then the conclusion of that, he shall bring forth our righteousness. And that is what we're talking as the light and as a judgment as the noonday. You know, that is a, a process you can't stop. The sunrise is talking about. 
You can't stop the sun rising in the morning. In the same way, if you learn to trust in the Lord, delight yourself in him, and then whatever you do, commit your way to him, he's going to bring forth your righteousness. Now, this is a great little model because we see this throughout Scripture. There's at least four or five times where we can show you, I can show you maybe some other time we'll get into the study of this. And we'll look at the way that this is the model we see in the Old Testament. It's a model that actually plays out in the, the Lord's Prayer, as we refer to it. Starting by trusting in God, delighting ourselves in Him, committing our way to Him, and then He'll bring forth our righteousness. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. And notice this, for His name's sake. This is great. I love this. Because... It's not about us. I mean, just as it wasn't with Israel, it wasn't about them as a nation specifically. God is going to keep his promises because he's an unconditional covenant-keeping God. But the reason God will keep his promises is because of his name. And the reason that God does and will do what he does for us is because, again, it's for his name, for his glory. That's a good thing because it's not just about us. It's not that God's going to get to a point and think, yeah, I made a mistake with them. God's doing what he's doing. God is faithful because of his name, because he has promised. Psalm 115, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Verse 1, not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but unto thy name be glory. Ezekiel 36, 22, God speaking to Israel. I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. And you can be sure that God is not going to fail in those things he does. And in verse 4 we read, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The valley of the shadow of death that we walk through. The valley is not death itself, okay? It's the valley of the shadow of death. And really it speaks of our journey through this world. That's the valley that we're going through. And as C.S. Lewis so wonderfully put it, this is just a shadow land. A shadow, as I'm sure you're aware, has no power. I like this quote from uh, Spurgeon. He says this, The worst evils of life are those which do not exist except in our imagination. If we had no troubles but real troubles we should not have a tenth part of our present sorrows. We fear a thousand deaths in fearing one. But the psalmist was cured of the disease of fearing. I will fear no evil. Interesting, isn't it? You know, sometimes we we imagine and we perceive all sorts of problems and and things, and, and so often those things don't actually come to pass. Shadows can't hurt you. And of course... You know for a fact that where there's a shadow, there's a light. You can't have a shadow unless you've got light. Hold on to that. Whenever you feel that shadow, there's a light. Again, that's why we don't fear. In 1 John 4, 18. See, but we are going through the valley. We're not stationary. We're not stuck in it. And also, notice that we're walking. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... We're walking. It's not something we're running. We're not, you know, looking over our shoulder in fear and trying to scarper. No, no, we're walking. This is a walk. We're going with the Lord. We're pilgrims. We're strangers here. This world is not our home. And the Lord is leading us to higher ground in his timing. 
And notice again, for thou art with me. This is the reason that David gives for not being afraid, for not fearing. Because not only has he already told us that the Lord is his shepherd, the Lord is our shepherd, but as he goes through this valley, as he goes through life, his shepherd is with him. And that shepherd, as we already alluded to already, not just a you know a shepherd wearing some nice casual soft clothing, but fully armoured up. That's our shepherd, ready to fend off any attacks, any walls that would come. For thou art with me. David is speaking directly to the Lord here. He kind of turns from giving us instruction, as it were, as he's writing this down. He turns and says, for thou art with me. He's turning the conversation in the psalm to God himself. Hebrews 13, 5, we have that reminder that God will never leave us or forsake us. And then we go on. You see, as I said a moment ago, that God is leading us. Our Savior is a, a warrior. And we're told that thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Psalm 2 speaks a lot about that rod. Jesus is going to come back and rule the nations with a rod of iron. The one that is accompanying you through life is the same one that will judge the nations. We just turn to Psalm 2 because it's helpful just to realize the, the power of the one who is by our side. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And it goes on. This really is a case of my dad is bigger than your dad. You know, God is with us, and we're told that thy rod... And they starve, they comfort me. Knowing that God is this God should be a great comfort. We see also Revelation 19 when the Lord returns to judge his enemies. That rod speaks of his might, his authority, his ability to protect. And then, of course, the staff. You know, again, so important because, you know, sometimes we run on ahead and we would do things and like a sheep, we need to be pulled back sometimes. You know, for me with the staff, with kind of the hook on the end of it. Sometimes the Lord needs to stop us from going in the direction we shouldn't. It's God's leading, God's guiding in all these things. It's interesting in Mark 6, verse 7 and 8, a reference we're talking about to the disciples about taking a staff only. Because it's with his staff that the shepherd would guide the sheep. So not only have we got a God who is there to protect us and watch over us, but he's also promising to keep us on track. See, he guides us where we cannot guide ourselves. Proverbs 20, verse 24 says, How can a man know his own way? Proverbs 14 reminds us, verse 12, that there is a way that seems right to a man. Psalm 119, verse 67 
He says, there before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, the verse says, Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Psalm 119.75, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. You see, many, many scriptures tell us that the Lord will lead us, will guide us, but correct us when we need correcting, will pull us back on track. Verse 5 says, Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. On Thursday evening, as we had the opportunity to sit with Linda, this verse particularly as I read it really spoke to me and I could just see a picture of you know the Lord laying out a table just getting it ready you know what it's like when somebody comes around in the evening for a meal you know and you're getting the table all set and everything's getting ready well it was just like heaven was getting ready to welcome a very special guest and they're getting the table ready and though in this world Linda was surrounded by enemies the world the flesh the devil all those things that we all struggle with right there in that bed those enemies were still as real as they'd been throughout linda's life but right in the midst of all that the lord was preparing this table and remember again that even though we go through the the shadow of death even though those shadows are there they just bear evidence to the fact that the light is greater the light is stronger he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Think of Haman's bad day back in Esther chapter 6. Remember that banquet that was prepared, that table that was all laid out? Haman thought that he was going to be the recipient of all this blessing. Turned out to be very far from it. This oil of anointing. We see in Exodus 29, it speaks of those that were chosen by God. Thou anointest my head. It's this acknowledgement that God is accepting us, is choosing us, and we use us for ministry and so on. The oil also, just before I talk about the cup for a second, I was listening to a commentary this morning. It was saying the oil typically would be put on a sheep for a couple of reasons. One, it would also make the, the, the sheep, or particularly a ram's head, more slippery. So it would tend to stop them fighting with each other, which was interesting. And the other thing the oil did by putting it on the sheep's head was it would stop bugs landing and making it their home as well. So it just made it better for the sheep not to have these bugs all around them. I thought it was just an interesting kind of analogy. You know, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, because, of course, oil is analogous to the Holy Spirit, it stops us fighting with one another because if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're full of the love, the joy, the peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, and self-control. It also stops bugs landing on us, which is a good thing, spiritually. And says, my cup runs over. You see, it's not just enough for us. It overflows. And that not that a great verse in thinking of of linda the way that god caused her cup to flow over to bless so many people what an incredible ministry the lord gave her verse six surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and i will dwell in the house of the lord forever see goodness and mercy shall hunt me is the idea they're just gonna stay on my heels 
goodness and mercy just not letting me go. I can't outrun them, which is a good thing. And again, Psalm 139, 1 to 14, you know, where can we go from God's presence? We, we can't escape God's presence. And now that we're his, now that he is our shepherd, now that he's this warrior who is walking with us, his rod, his staff, he's going to guide us, he's going to stop us from going astray. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, Linda has that joy right now of being there in the house of the Lord. You know, David in Psalm 27 went on to pray this, his desire to be in the house of the Lord. I'm just going to read this. this growing up again, this was one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 27. You know how it is. Whichever psalm you read is your favorite one at the time, but they're, they're all wonderful. But Psalm 27, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me, he shall set me upon a rock and now shall my head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me therefore i will offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy i will sing yes i will sing praises unto the lord what a great statement i'll just read this to you because this struck me as uh, quite interesting you know you and i probably would tend to think you know i'd love to be able to hang on until the rapture you know, that's going to be an amazing thing, isn't it? To be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But Spurgeon said this, and I thought this was really quite interesting. He said, many persons profess to receive much comfort from the hope that they shall not die. Certainly there will be some who will be alive and remain at the coming of the Lord. But is this a very much an advantage in such an escape from death as to make it the object of Christian desire? A wise man might prefer of the two to die. For those who shall not die, but who shall be caught up together with the Lord in the air, will be losers rather than gainers. They will lose that actual fellowship with Christ in the tomb which dying saints will have. And we are expressly told that they shall have no preference beyond those who are asleep. Let us be of Paul's mind when he said that to die is gain. And think of departing to be with Christ, which is far better. I thought that was quite interesting. You know, there's a privilege for those that die because they get to have this period of time in the Lord. It's almost like they arrive before the party begins and they get some special quality time with the host. And, you know, all those that have gone ahead, they're there. And the Lord is going to bring them back when he comes back for the church. And we don't know, we, we may be the generation that will see the rapture. But if not, it's not a bad thing. Because we could all, if we go before the rapture, we all get that quality time. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's, I shall lack nothing. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. That's, I shall not lack provision. He leads me beside the still waters. I shall not lack peace. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. I shall not lack guidance. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I shall not lack courage of the dark hour. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. 
I shall not lack true comfort. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. I shall not lack protection, preservation, and honor. Thou anointest my head with oil. I shall never lack joy. My cup runs over. I shall never lack fullness of blessing. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall not lack divine favor during my earthly life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall not lack a heavenly home when my earthly tour is over. Once again, these seven titles of God that we see, the Lord will provide, the Lord that heals, the Lord our peace, the Lord our righteousness, the Lord ever-present, the Lord our banner, the Lord our shepherd. Again, the Lord is my shepherd, Jehovah Ra. I shall not want, I shall lack nothing, Jehovah Jireh. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. I shall not lack provision. Jehovah Jireh, again. He leads me beside the still waters. I shall not lack peace. Jehovah Shalom. He restores my soul. I shall not lack restoration. Jehovah Rapha. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. I shall not lack guidance. Jehovah Sidkenu. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Though rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Again, I will not lack courage. Jehovah Shammah. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. I shall not lack protection, preservation, and honor. Jehovah Nissi. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever all because of Jehovah Shua, all because of Jesus. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.